Community Church, we are so pleased to be with you and be together again. Uh, as we are coming into this week, we are wrapping up this elementary series that we've been in over the last several weeks. And it's, it's my sincere hope, and I'm going to speak on behalf of the rest of the folks that have preached in this series, that, that if you've been with us for all of these weeks, that every time that you've heard a message, you've walked away encouraged, uh, that you walked away feeling equipped, uh, and that in a very practical sense, you've had a new tool in your discipling tool belt, so to speak. Uh, that every time that we've spoken from this pulpit, that it's helped you to be a better disciple. It's helped you to look and think and act more like Jesus. Because what we see is that this path of discipleship that Jesus lays out for us uh, is never this one-lane road. It's always two parallel things happening at the same time. There's me and you as a growing disciple in one lane. And then there's this need, this conviction, this call for us to always be taking somebody else along on the journey with us. That we're not just disciples for ourselves, that we're disciples who are making disciples. This is why discipleship is one of our core values at the church, one of five, uh, because we think that it's so important that we respond to the call that Jesus laid out in the Great Commission, that he told every single one of his followers, that includes me and you, to go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all of the things that he commanded and instructing them to do the same. So today, whether you're right here in Mount Pleasant, whether you're in Alma joining us or you're online, the goal is that we look at this two-lane road, this dual process of being a disciple, but also making disciples. And we're going to try and pull some examples from the life of Jesus and how uh, he navigated that relationship with his 12 disciples uh, and how he taught them along the way, and how at different phases of the ministry required different types of leadership. And we're going to try and pull some lessons for our own lives today. And so we've been using a shape each week uh, to help us understand and latch on to an idea. And so the shape we're going to look at this week is another simple one. Let's see how I do drawing. It's a square. Okay, not bad. Uh, and so the, the square is unique in that it's got four sides. There's four stages of discipleship that we're going to look at today. And so we're going to see at each of these four stages, one, there's a different experience as a disciple at each stage. And two, that the leadership required at each one of those four stages is unique. So when we talk about discipling others, that's going to be our main thrust this morning, is that we want to be leaders who can lead, make disciples. We we're all talking about, in essence, this, this spirit of leadership. And, and what does that look like? You know, leadership in the church can be a little bit uh, tricky sometimes. There's always this question of who has leadership, who owns leadership in any given organization, but particularly in the church, right? And so there's a really easy answer. There's some folks that have a title, uh, that have a job, that have a distinction. You know, your pastors, your ministry leaders, your staff, your board. Those, all, those folks all have this positional leadership, it's leadership that comes by the nature of the role that they hold. But what's different about Christian leadership is that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, if you've got a title, you're a leader. He says, no, every single one of us is meant to lead others. And so we need to expand our definition of leadership a little bit when it comes to the church and how we function. And so Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to look at this on screen a little bit. Uh, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but the gist of this passage, and you can read for yourself, 
is that Jesus contrasts the example of the Gentiles, who in this day hold power. This is Rome that holds power over the people of Israel. And they lord it over the people of Israel. They lord it over their own followers. They hold it over their heads, and they use their positions of power to gain influence, to gain stuff for themselves. And by contrast, Jesus says, if you're going to call yourself a follower of mine, there's going to be none of that with you. Actually, if you want to be a leader, you need to be a servant. And he completely flips it on its head. And he goes even a step further. Not only do you have to be a servant, but if you want to have greatness as a leader, you actually have to be a slave to everyone. That's where we're going to start this morning, this, this assumption that if you're calling yourself a Christ follower, that A, you're a leader, and B, if you're going to lead like Jesus led, you're going to be a servant. And if you want to be great, you're going to be the servant of all. And so we're going to look at, uh, like the square, each stage of discipleship has something unique about it. There's a unique experience as a follower. There's a unique requirement as a leader. And I'm going to give you a fair warning. The next, like, maybe 10 minutes are going to be a little bit much. There's going to be a lot of information. There's going to be some letters and some acronyms and some summaries and stuff. Like, hang with me. And I promise we'll get to something that you'll be like, all right, I can latch on to that. But we're going to pull a lot of lessons out for the next few minutes here. So stage one, uh, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. And so Jesus is coming uh, along into ministry. He's going public for the very first time, and he's meeting these first disciples. And he starts this way. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee, he sees Simon and his brother Andrew, and they're casting a net into the lake because they're fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus says, and I'm going to send you out to fish for people. At once, they leave their nets and they follow him. And then he goes a little farther. He sees James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat. They're preparing their nets as well. Without delay, he calls them. And they leave their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men, and they follow him. The call is simple. Jesus is out looking for disciples. And because these guys are fishermen, they, have, they didn't make the cut. That's, that's, the, that's the hidden nuance here. It's because they're doing a job, because they're working in the family business, they weren't quite up to the par, up to the task of being called as a disciple by a distinguished rabbi. So they're out there working a job, trying to make a money for their family, provide a living, and Jesus comes along and he's looking for disciples. And he gives them almost this like childly simple call. The kingdom's at hand, repent and believe, come and follow me. And he gives them a promise, I'm going to make you into fishers of men. And he doesn't really spend any time at all uh, making sure that they're up to it. He doesn't give them, you know, some skills assessment or a spiritual gifts assessment to see, like, oh, are these guys going to be the right fit for my ministry? No. He puts the call out there, he casts the vision, and then he waits to see what the response looks like. And the disciples, are, they're all excited now because they know Jesus is a rabbi. They know he's a teacher. They know he's a leader worth following. And so what happens? They do the responsible thing. They go to Dad and say, hey, Dad... I'm giving you my two weeks' notice. I'm going to help you find somebody to replace me on the boat. I'm going to make it easy for you, right? Oh, 
They drop everything. They leave the nets in the boat. Even says the, the ones are like, hey, good luck with those hired guys. Hope they work out for you. And they immediately follow the call of Jesus because they're excited. A rabbi wants them to come and follow him. And they enter into this phase of discipleship. Uh, we're going to use the letter D to just represent the disciples. They enter into this first phase of discipleship. And they're full of enthusiasm. But they are totally unprepared for the journey that's ahead of them. They have no clue what is coming. And you have to wonder if they could look into the future over the next three years and see what life following Jesus was going to mean for them. The experiences that they would have, the, the disappointments, would they have jumped in quite so readily? Would they have given it a second thought and maybe stuck with fishing? But we find ourselves in this first stage of discipleship all the time, though. You know, we, we encounter something, a friend has a hobby that we're like, oh, that looks really fun. You watch something on television, you're like, I could do forged in fire. I could make knives. That would be awesome. But then you actually get into it, and you're like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> this is way more work than I thought it was going to be. I actually don't have a clue of what it would look like to do that. I remember specifically uh, when I first encountered Christ in high school. I was so excited about the Savior who had transformed my life around. Uh, but I was completely clueless about how to pray what it meant like to, to read the scripture. How do I know Jesus? How do I encounter him? How do I grow in a relationship with him? I was just full of excitement and enthusiasm. And I'm running around telling everybody that I can know, everybody I got bumped into about this Jesus guy, and the Lord totally spared me uh, that nobody ever was like, oh yeah? Jesus is fake. How do you know Jesus is real? Praise God, he completely spared me from that experience because I wouldn't have been able to give anybody an answer. All I knew was my momentary experience about how God got a hold of my heart, and that was enough in the moment to latch me on to this whole lifelong journey with Jesus. If we had to put a summary around this first phase as a disciple, it's this. They are full of enthusiasm. They have all the confidence in the world. There's no experience to be had whatsoever. And they really don't have a clue what they're doing. There's low competence. It's this phase that you could call unconscious incompetence. They have no idea what they're doing, but they don't know that they have no idea. And you'll see that Jesus, uh, he's leading them, and he's not really trying to get their opinion on ministry strategy or tactics He's not like, what village do you guys think we should go to next? No. He's looking to give direction and invite them to follow. It's, I'm going to do the work. You guys just come along for the ride and see what's going to happen. He gives them this directive leadership. Come follow me, and I'm going to make you into something. It's not that they have to do anything to become this new thing. It's Jesus who's going to do the work in them to make them into this new thing. At this stage, it's all about leading by example and just inviting them along for the ride. This first phase of leadership, I'll just abbreviate it with L1, is all about that directive style. It's about confident action and clear vision. 
But without those Jesus-like qualities that he has, his humility, his grace, and this baseline where he says, if you want to be great, you're going to be a servant, directive leadership is hard to follow. We all know that person, right, who, because they say they have a position, they feel full of authority and full of ability to lead people, whether or not you're along for the ride with them or not. But when you temper that with Christ-likeness, when you temper that with grace and humility and service, that's somebody you want to follow. But when you don't have it, you will very quickly find yourself walking alone. As a leader, phase one looks like this. It's high direction. It's high example. There's low consensus. He's not looking for input. There's low explanation. It's very literally, come along and see what I'm going to do. So there is a really practical reason that we put phase one at the top of the square, and it's not just because it's the easiest place to write. Uh, it's because when, as a disciple, you make this transition from stage one to stage two, it feels like walking off the edge of a cliff. As a disciple spends more time with Jesus, they start to get this picture of his ministry. They start to hear him talk about the kingdom. And all of a sudden, they're realizing, man, this, this kingdom that I thought that I was going to have a hand in, that I was going to bring to life, I don't really know that I can actually do that. They used to believe that they were all about it. It was all about their work and their ability. And now as they spend time with Jesus, they realize that I don't know that I can actually help in doing this. They also start to figure out that Jesus, this guy that they're following, is systematically ticking off anybody that has any significance in the culture. He calls out the Jewish leaders. He calls out the Roman government. They think that Jesus, all of these powers, think that Jesus is a curse on society. Oh, I'm following Jesus. Guilt by association right there. And so now they have all of this worry and fear. Like, man, if they hate Jesus that much, what do they think about me? If they want to put Jesus on trial, does that mean I'm next? And Jesus has to start spending time with the disciples in a different way. He has to encourage them to overcome their fears. He has to encourage them to overcome their worry. He has to cast fresh vision to remind them of the mission that he's called them to. That make disciples with me. Come and follow me. And he spends more time being like a shepherd to them, giving them loving guidance instead of high direction. He coaches them through their worry and inexperience. And this is a crucial stage for the development of character because in the second stage of discipleship, this D2 phase, this is the time when the disciples realize and that we as individuals realize that we can't do it all on our own. We actually don't know how to do the stuff that Jesus wants us to do. So Jesus starts to call them into more ministry, and the disciples are like, I don't know how to pray for the sick and see them healed. I don't know how to cast out demons. I don't know how to feed a crowd. I don't know how to bring the kingdom to life. And all of that excitement that they had in phase one, receiving the call, they're like, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? 
As D1 wears off and turns into this rough life of D2, the short answer of how they feel is, this is not fun anymore. If you had to put a summary around it, it would look like this. They are full of low enthusiasm, low confidence, low experience, and low competence. They are consciously incompetent now. Now they don't know how to do the stuff that Jesus wants them to do, and they know that they can't do it anymore. So Jesus, as the leader in this phase of ministry, he comes alongside them as this visionary coaching leader who, who helps them navigate all of their frustrations and, and failures, all the uncertainty and all the concern that they have. And he recasts the vision for them, and he tries to encourage them as best he can. We see in Luke chapter 12, it's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where uh, Jesus is talking to a crowd, but I think he slips this in just for his disciples. Don't be afraid, little flock. Your father's pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that won't wear out, a treasure in heaven that'll never fail, where no thief comes and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the disciples and Jesus have come through this time where the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been openly opposing them. They've been trying to catch them in heresy and put them on trial. And the disciples are realizing that Jesus is just going about opposing the religious leaders of the day. They're not shy that the, the, the leaders dislike Jesus. He reminds them that the kingdom of God is the end game. It's not about this life. It's about this kingdom that God's called you to help me bring in. It's not about the things that you use to hold on to security. It's not about the purse that you carry with you. But that it's the kingdom. He's encouraging them with the truth of God versus the concerns of this life. So the leader in phase two is high direction. But he's starting to engage with them more. It's more discussion. He's still leading by example almost all the time. But now he's giving them the, the openness into his life. He's accessible to them. You see this time of ministry where Jesus is taking them away from the crowds just to spend time with the disciples. He spends greater and greater amounts of time alone with them to give them his attention. Because phase two is all about development. It's character building. It's not a fun phase, especially if you're a young person and your parent says to you, It'll build character. Usually means something bad has to happen, right? But that's what phase two is all about. It's about character building for the disciples. But if you can stick it out, if the disciples can make it through phase two, then phase three is all about growing. It feels a little bit better now. We've built character, we've gained experience, and we have this ever-increasing sense of accomplishment. Because Jesus is exposing them to more and more ministry, and they're, they're getting chances to have some wins, finally. This season, this phase three for the disciples, is marked by a sense of Jesus telling them, you go do ministry, and I'm going to help you. So this is the point where he, we see him sending them out in twos and threes into the countryside and telling them to go to the villages and preach the word and heal the sick and cast out demons, all of this stuff, and then he brings them back together. They're like, Jesus, we, we did the things. 
We, we prayed and people were made well. We cast out the demons. We, we saw people come to know and believe in you. But then they're like, oh, but then there was this one. We couldn't get this demon to come out. And so Jesus, again, he turns back into this coach. He says, oh, yeah, those ones? Prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting, that's how you do that. And so he's continuing to give them feedback on their ministry. But what happens in phase three is after they've survived the hardship of phase two, they know that they need Jesus more than ever. They're fully dependent on him. And Jesus starts to shift the way that he talks to his disciples in phase three. It's no longer uh, treating them like hired workers, sending them off to go do this and go do that and run this errand and, and do these things. Now he moves to calling them his friends. John chapter 15, verse 12 through 17 my command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Love, it looks like this, lay down your life for your friend. You're my friends if you do what I command, and I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master's business is. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I make known to you. And then he gives him this call to, to bear fruit. Something we looked at last week. Bear fruit, love one another. And so he shifts from treating them like workers to treating them like partners. They develop intimacy as, they, as their friendship grows. They've spent time with each other. And now you see the disciple and leader relationship becomes a bit more equitable. Jesus brings the disciples kind of inside the fold a little bit. When he preaches to the crowds, then he pulls the disciples aside and said, hey, just in case you missed this, here's what this parable means. Hey, just in case you didn't quite get that, that story that I told, Here's what this is all about. Here's what this is going to look like. I couldn't tell everyone because they wouldn't get it, but God's revealing this truth to you. And this phase as a disciple feels really good, but it's not all rosy. Because what happens is Jesus starts to give them some hard truth. He starts to lay it on them that, hey, I know you're feeling good right now, but I'm not going to be here forever. Actually, as a matter of fact, not only am I going to go away, but I'm going to die you're going to have to do this without me. And all of those lessons that they learned in, in phase two that they thought they had overcome, all their insecurity and their doubt, it comes roaring back to the surface. And so Jesus, again, has to come back and comfort them. As a disciple in this phase, it's all about conscious competence. I start to know some things, but I still really have to think about the lessons I'm trying to apply. It's like learning a new skill or a new program or a new initiative. I kind of know how this works, but let me think through the steps. Okay, step one is this. Step two is this. Okay, I'm going to go do those. This is a time when Jesus can correct them and teach them without it really defeating them. And there's moments in Jesus' relationship with the disciples where he's like, guys, are you kidding me? How do you not understand this? And the disciples go away, and they're kind of wounded by it. But in phase three, he can correct them. James and John have this moment in Mark chapter 10 where they come to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, can you just give us this one thing? We know that, that pretty soon you're going to be in power. You're going to be in the heavens with your father. Can you just promise us one thing? Can you let me sit at your left hand and, and my brother sit at your right hand? It's just a small thing. And Jesus is lovingly indignant with them. Like, do you understand what you're asking me? Can you actually do the things that I'm about to do? 
Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you serve in the way that I'm about to serve? And these disciples, they're, they're really feeling pretty good about the way that they've been living life with Jesus. And so they're like, yeah, we can do it, Jesus. We can drink the cup. We can, we can go all the way with you. It's like, I hope it's true. I hope you can. But I can't promise you the thing that you want. Only God can assign that. And he goes back and he actually teaches them that same lesson on servant leadership that we looked at from the book of Mark early in the message. It's like, by the way, you want to be great, you got to serve everybody. you got to be the slave to all. So don't come asking me for greatness unless you're ready to be the slave. As the disciples are in this phase, if we had to summarize it, they're increasing in their enthusiasm. They feel like they're starting to get some traction now. They're growing in their experience. They, they have moments of confidence. And they're occasionally getting it right. They know what they're doing. Growing competence. For Jesus, as a leader in this third phase, it's all about moving his responsibilities and his authority and his leadership onto the disciples. He's transitioning them. He's preparing them for doing ministry without him. And it's marked by this whole idea of, you're going to go do it again, and I'm going to watch, or I'm going to help. And so from a practical standpoint, he's, he's giving the disciples more input. He's giving them more responsibility in the doing of the ministry. There's this moment where he goes to feed a crowd, and the disciples are like, send everybody away so they can go eat. He's like, you guys feed them. They're like, all we got is a couple of fish and some bread. And I think he's kind of waiting on them to figure it out, to apply what he's taught them. They're like, Jesus, help. We don't know how to do it. He's like, okay, let's pray. Then they feed the whole crowd. But there's moments where we see this all the time with the disciples where he's trying to invite them into more and more ownership of ministry. Jesus becomes much more of a pastor and a friend in phase three. He's trying to prepare them for this moment without him. So he's, he gives less direction. There's more consensus among he and the disciples about how to do the work of the ministry. All sorts of discussion. He's, he's really inviting them behind the curtain now. And he still just has loads of time for them. The last phase, stage four, is the most transitional of all the phases. It's where the disciples are trying to figure out what does it look like for us to do ministry without Jesus. And Jesus is trying to make sure that those disciples are up to the task. Because he can't really go away unless he knows they're ready. He wants them to be independent and autonomous. Because what happens just like he told them it was going to, Jesus is arrested, he's put on trial, and he's sent to the cross. And the disciples think he's gone. But then this surprising thing starts to happen, is that Jesus starts to show up after he's been raised for the dead. And it's never very long, but it's, it's these moments, and it catches them by surprise even on occasion. There's this moment shortly after that Jesus is raised from the dead and the disciples are freaking out and they've locked themselves in this room 
And the Bible even tells us that not only did they shut and lock the doors, but they locked all the windows because they're fearful of the, the Jewish authorities. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is in the room with them. They're like, oh, I, how'd you get here? <laughs> and he tells them, he tries to encourage them, but he has this moment where he's like, I'm not going to be here with you long, but the next time I see you, we're going to be in Galilee. And then he leaves again. He doesn't go through the door, he just leaves. And the disciples are like, all right, he said Galilee, let's go to Galilee. And they traveled Galilee, and they, they start to look for Jesus, and they, they can't find him right away. And there's this moment when I feel like the disciples lose the plot again. Even though Jesus thinks they're ready, they kind of lose the plot because they don't find Jesus, and so what do they do? They fall back on what they know best, and they go fishing. So they have this night of fishing, and they're out in the boats, and they don't catch anything, and they're frustrated, and they're discouraged, and they come back to shore. And as they're traveling back to shore, there's somebody on the shore waiting for them. Jesus. You have to imagine that moment from the perspective of, of their leader. You spend three years preparing them for this moment where you're going to go away, and the first time you leave them without any adult supervision, they forget the mission, and they go fishing. Sounds like something out of Tom Sawyer, right? They forget the mission and they go fishing, and Jesus is like, guys, remember? Go make disciples, make you fishers of men. Like, you're not catching men in the boat. He just is working and reminding them again in this moment of the mission. He's trying to delegate his authority and his responsibility to them. And this is the end goal that he's been pursuing for all of these years of ministry, for all of the times, all of the trials, all of the encouragement, all the teaching is for this moment where he gives them this great commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20. Jesus comes to them and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And if you're familiar with this part of Matthew chapter 28, that as soon as he says, I'm with you forever, he goes back to heaven. And again, he's left the disciples on their own. Only this time, they don't lose the plot. They don't go fishing. They get on with the mission. As a disciple, in this last stage, they're full of enthusiasm because they're believing in the mission that caused them. They're full of confidence. They have all the experience of three years spent with Jesus, and they know what they're doing now. For Jesus, though, he's at this end goal. He finally says to them, you go do the mission. I'm going to watch you. And Jesus moves into this place of being very low direction. There's all the consensus in the world because Jesus isn't giving them commands anymore. It's all up to the disciples about how they carry out the mission from here on out. He's not there to provide an example for them. He does promise his spirit to continue to give them explanation, to continue to give them wisdom and application. And so we've looked at this tool 
And by far, of the five weeks that we've done this elementary series, this is the most involved. It's like the most sides and the most letters and the most acronyms and all this stuff that's happening. And, and I'm going to ask and answer the question for all of us, so what? I'm not Jesus. I'm not trying to start some global movement that goes across geography and time that sets up uh, an entire space of folks that worship him. I'm Joe. I sit in the seats on Sunday, and I work in an accounting firm. What does any of this have to do with me? Why do I need to take any of this to heart? Here's the answer. Because when we look at the call of the church, this great commission that Jesus leaves with the disciples, it's not just their commission. It's our commission. And it's not just Mount Pleasant Community Church, and it's not just the church in America. It's the big C church everywhere throughout all of history. And when we think about what that looks like, the, the simplest way that I can boil it down is this, that every single day, we should find ways to look and think and act more like Jesus. And the part that we sometimes can leave out and forget about is that we should teach others to do the same thing. As I said at the very beginning of our time together this morning, that this process of discipleship is always this parallel two-lane thing. There's me as a disciple, and then there's the person I'm leading to be a disciple like Jesus as well. It's the absolute need for us to always be bringing somebody along with us on the journey. And I believe that particularly our modern church, the 21st century church, needs leaders more than ever. And not just the positional, I have a title, I have a position, a job to do leaders, but the, I'm going to be the servant of all leaders. Particularly in this time when our landscape is always changing around us. We need a new breath of leadership in the church. For people that are less concerned about, we do church this way because that's we've always done it. And more concerned with, I want to make disciples who are rooted in the truth of God's word. I want to make disciples who are rooted in the leading of the Holy Spirit and who are rooted in the grace of Jesus Christ. That needs to be our focus. I have zero interest of bringing more people into this space or into our online experience or into our Alma campus to be spectators. We need sold-out leaders who will take their own lives of faith so seriously and who are willing to be equipped for the express purpose of making more disciples. If we're going to be a community of faith that figures out how to thrive here in this world that we live in, it's going to be because we respond to the challenge. It's going to be because we take serious the call to make disciples who make disciples. And this is not just something that you need uh, a seminary degree to do. This is not something that you need to attend a class to be prepared for or have some sort of certification. This is for every single one of us. You could walk out of this place today. You could walk off your couch if you're watching online and find people in your life who are dying for spiritual leadership. Who are dying for a vision that is compelling enough to move them forward for Jesus. Scripture tells us that for a lack of vision, the people perish. And we need leaders who are willing to step out in faith and do something about it. 
There's an author that I love by the name of John Acuff, and, and he says this, and I hope we can make it true of ourselves, that we need to be brave enough to be bad at something new. We need to be brave enough to be bad at something new. Because I know that this process of making disciples is going to be new for many of us. I know it's not going to feel like it's easy. It's not going to feel like we're equipped for it. But we have to be brave enough to be bad at it until we can gain the experience to be good at it. And here's the thing. If you feel unequipped, if you feel unprepared, if you feel unqualified, perfect. Because when you feel that way, God is ready to do and see and flow through you more than you could ever imagine. But we're not going to leave you all on your own because we know that it's hard to do discipleship. And so we at Community Church, we put together some great resources for you. And if this sounds like a sales pitch, it totally is. mpcc.org slash discipleship. There is a discipleship pathway. It will teach you all about the shapes in more detail than what we've looked at in the last five weeks. It will give you resources for how to understand and relate to the gospel in ways that are new and fresh and exciting for you. It will teach you ways to be able to connect with people who are dying for leadership. And then the last thing I'm going to say in my sales pitch is that you need to be in community to do this well. You can't make disciples in isolation. And so I know the, the age of COVID-19 feels like a weird time to be pitching groups, uh, but we are working together uh, to find new and exciting and innovative ways to make groups still be the forefront of ministry, even when we can't gather more than 10 people inside somebody's house. And so mpcc.org slash groups, find a way to get connected. Find a way to put yourself in a community of people who can encourage you, who can come alongside you and hold you up when you feel unequipped, that you can use as a resource. Because here's what I hope, and I pray, that we will rise to the occasion, that we'll rise to the call to make disciples, that we can actually take on this challenge of making disciples in the way that Jesus did. We have the greatest model of leadership that we could ever ask for in Jesus. And when we respond, this little ministry of community church, the community at large, Isabella, Gratiot County, the campus, and way beyond is going to have an impact that we're going to see impact because of something that started right here in this little local church. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I do pray today that as we get up out of our seats, as we walk off our couches, as we tune off online, that we would have this passion, this fire, this seed of an idea that we have this call to make disciples burning inside of us, so much so that, that nothing we do throughout the rest of this day and this coming week will be able to put it out. That the only thing that can satisfy this, this need and this urge inside of us is to, to dive in, to be willing to be bad at making disciples because it's so important. We just pray for the impact that's about to happen. We pray for the folks that are in need of spiritual leadership that you would bring them to us. God, that we would see all that you have called this church to be in this time and in this place. We pray this in your name. Amen.